0: Just son, into your presence you call us, you call us to come. And you might be thinking, what has this got to do with the heart of the elder brother? It's usually the first act of this parable that we concentrate on. Um, we look at the younger brother, it was done a while ago in this church not long ago by James Burnett in a fantastically refreshing sermon. Um, but Usually we kind of slide off the elder brother, just give him a few words. But I want to look at him. I'm going to put my hand up to tell Alison to move on, so I'm not waving at you. I might be waving to say I'm drowning, but no, I'm not really. Um, Alison just, yeah. Why look at this guy? A couple of reasons, really. He keeps cropping up. He keeps cropping up, or as I said earlier, his female equivalent, in my heart. In various situations, at different times in my life, he crops up. And I feel that this anger and resentment. I feel a desire, a deep desire, to put other people down. Um, and to cling on to my resentment as part of my identity. That happens from time to time. He crops up in another way as well, because I don't know if you have this experience too, but whenever this parable is talked about, somebody usually says, in fact, more than one person will often say, do you know, I have a lot of sympathy with this guy. Did he not have a point? There was that desperate brother of his went off and blew everything. And then he's supposed to come in and celebrate his return. It's not fair. It's just not fair. So for that reason also, I wanted to take this opportunity to look at it. There is a final reason, which is the most important reason of all, (laughs) which is that Jesus thought it was very important. And in fact, you could make a good argument, which I think is a right argument, that the whole point of this parable is chiefly about the elder brother. Because you need to take it into the context. If you look at verses 1 and 2, which I'm sure you're pretty familiar with, um, you have two groups of people, excuse me, I just have to blow my nose from time to time. Um, You've got two groups of people listening to Jesus. We know who they are. The first group is the tax collectors and sinners who are extraordinarily attracted to Jesus, which is in itself a challenge for us in the 21st century church in the West. There is something about Jesus that intrigued these people. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to find out more about him. Now, they didn't necessarily all come to faith, but a lot of them did, and a lot of them really wanted to be with him in a way that they don't seem to really want to be in our churches. So that's something for us to ponder another day. These people, you know this, they are the irreligious, they are the rule breakers rather than the rule keepers. They are the immoral, but also it's more complicated than that. They are also the non-respectable, which is not necessarily about morality. But these are the people who want to do their own thing, or maybe who are marginalised and so in some way can't keep the law and therefore are excluded, perhaps. So there's a whole lot of different people in there. In the other group, we've got the scribes, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, these are the religious insiders. So you've got one group as the religious outsiders and one group who are the religious insiders. And who are we closer to? There will be... um, A range of answers to that, because it depends um, where we are in our lives. Uh, Sitting here this morning, there may be different answers. Some may identify more with the younger brother this morning, some with the older. But I would venture to say that the heart of the elder brother is a temptation for those of us who are, in some sense, religious insiders. They are the rule keepers. And they get a lot out of keeping the rules. And in fact, their motivations are in part good. But the thing is, they don't like Jesus. They grumble about him. They mutter about him. They complain about him. And they are the reason that he is telling this parable. And wherever Jesus' teaching is, there is life there may be challenge and uncomfortableness but there is stuff that we need to be meditating on and taking into ourselves so that's why we're doing it. Alison, the parable explains Jesus' ministry to both groups it's not that he's talking only to one group but is particularly aimed at group two And it's interesting, it's a very dramatic parable. I think we've probably heard it so many times that we forget how deeply dramatic it is. It's a drama in two acts, two different sons, two different hearts, two different sets of behaviour. And it ends on a very high note of drama, on a real cliffhanger. Because the invitation is open, as in the song that we sang with the children. Jesus is saying to the elder brother, to the pharisees whom he represents you are loved. Will you come in and be comfortable and at home in my house or will you not? And it's left open. We don't know their response. Now as we go through it the key in both acts that I I want you to be thinking about is the relationship with the father because this is what salvation is it is relationship with the father so to save time I'm going to telescope it a bit here and give you a summary I now have enough material for four weeks so you need to be praying that I stop but I will stop I I promise I'll stop but I'm all excited and I could be here for four weeks in a row so give thanks that Jonathan's back next week right the father has two lost sons not one two lost sons because both of these sons in their own way and I hope it will become clear as we go through they both want to control their father in some way or another because for both of them they want his resources rather than him. The elder brother was playing a longer game and prepared to wait much longer but there is still this idea in there about I want the resources to do my own thing and one of them hopes to achieve that by being very very bad and one hoped to achieve it by being very very good. But key in this is that neither understands the father's love and neither loves the father for himself. Now very quickly act one the younger brother. It's the classic 20th and 21st century cry of many young people but actually older folks as well. It's the classic sin in the garden of Eden I want to do my own thing, I do not want to be curtailed by this God, I don't want to be told what to do, I have to find my own truth, I have to define my own meaning and I got to go out there and live it. So he grossly insults the father, you know, he might as well have said, I wish you were dead. And also there's a big cost to the father who would have had to sell land to realise his assets in order to give the younger son his due, which was one-third of the estate. Now the father didn't have to do this. He would have been within his rights to run the guy off his land. But the great shock of this for the original hearers would have been, not only does he not run him off the land, he listens to him and he lets him go. And of course we know the story, he um, loses it all, blows the lot, and ends up in the equivalent of the gutter. And to begin to come to his senses, this guy has had to go as far away as he could get and as low as he could get, and sometimes that's the only way that we can come to God it has to play out before we come to our senses. And needing to survive and have food to put in his mouth, he comes to his senses and he begins to find his way back. Now Jesus pulls no punches in describing this young man's behavior. It's not that he's saying, oh, you know, dear love him." he couldn't help it, he was young, he had to find his own way. No, Jesus, Jesus shows it all in the parable. And he's very clear, this guy's foolish. He's irresponsible, selfish, self-destructive, hurts his family very badly and nearly died. Jesus also shows that salvation, survival and salvation, which is so much more than survival, so much more, lies in his coming home to the Father. Because again... That's what salvation is. Even huger shock for the hearers, the original listeners. They would have been expecting something like what the younger son says on the left hand of the slide there. Something like this is going through his mind. I know I have no rights anymore with my dad. He could refused to let me set foot on the estate, he could send me packing. He has really given up any rights he ever had. So he comes back thinking about restitution. I'm going to say sorry, he has it all prepared. I will live outside the estate as a hired man and maybe I'll be able to work up enough once I've survival means maybe I'll be able to start paying off my debt to my father and maybe in that sense I will one day be acceptable again or a little bit more acceptable than I am at the moment but as we read in the parable the father embraces him before any of these words actually leave his lips and that is very shocking indeed But the Father is coming from a completely different place. The Father is saying, I have always loved you. I have never not loved you. Nothing you have done makes me love you any less. I want you home with me. I want you home. And then when you're home, maybe we can work on the changes. So we don't ever have to earn the love of God. We just need to know our need of him. And we do need to come. Act 2, the elder brother. How's he going to react? He's now facing the possibility, at least, of another big financial hit. If the father reinstates the son completely, he's going to face a third of what he has going when the father dies. Yet he's about to go in and celebrate. Jesus tells us in verse 28, he became angry and refused to go in. Now this again, although we may not see it quite so clearly, is another huge insult to the father. It's huge Because it sounds like there was a big party going on in there, which means possibly members of the community invited in for this big celebration. But the elder son very conspicuously not to be there and to refuse to go in is an enormous insult. And again, the father could have been very angry and sent him packing temporarily. And you might want to say at this point, surely he had good reason, because he'd been the model son, he was dutiful. He was obedient. And this, I think, is where our sympathy with him comes from. You know, he stayed at home, he did the stuff, he did his duty. And this brother had done the opposite. Is God rewarding that in some way? Surely not. How could his father accept his brother back so readily without a period of proving his repentance and reformation? Why doesn't he make him crawl? A bit of groveling wouldn't have done him any harm in fact a lot of groveling would have done him a lot of good so the elder brother thinks and there's this deep sense of justice here it can't be right it just can't be right this cannot be happening and of course this is exactly the Pharisees complaint against Jesus how dare he how can he associate with sinners before they've repented and changed and that is the crux of this how dare he associate with sinners how dare he accept them into his presence before they repented and changed because by the tenets of the pharisees to do that is to make yourself unclean it in their eyes makes jesus contaminated and that's no way for a rabbi to get on what does Jesus say? That once again heedless of his dignity. And again the father is amazing. He, he didn't have to come out. He didn't have to speak to the, uh, the elder brother. He didn't have to plead. But what does he do? He comes out and he pleads with him. And then the elder brother's anger erupts in verse 29 so what is his complaint? I've worked for you like a slave all these years. I've worked for you like a slave. I've never disobeyed your commands and you've never given me anything not even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. No presents, no parties for me. And the really important bit in there is I've worked for you like a slave all these years. And I think the sympathy that we have for him is maybe a sympathy based on the idea that, well, there are justice issues around in it, but it's the idea of, you know, it's a hot tempered thing, it's, it's, he just saw this happening and he blew up, but he'll come back again. But in saying that, it shows that this is a long-term resentment. This guy is working out of a kind of frozen anger. The kind of thing that we don't really like to see in our hearts, but which can lurk there and can lurk there for years. What does this feel like? What was in this guy's heart? His heart was not a pleasant place to be. And God looks on him with compassion. The Father looks on him with compassion. Because in that heart is a lot of pain. To be that angry means you've been hurt. And there's sorrow in there. And there's resentment. There's a lot of complaining. And complainers are hard to live with. And of course, if you're complaining a lot, can't be very joyful, because the two things can't really coexist. There's a deep jealousy, there's a deep insecurity and a hard, frozen anger. The problem is his understanding of his relationship with the father. To him, the father is a master, a slave driver, and he's down here. A slave. This is based on fear. He doesn't know that he has always been loved. Now at this point you're all looking very grim and very solemn and very depressed. Well this is the happy bit. Michael Fitch is smiling. It's encouraging. He has not given up in despair. Good. Michael is strong. It's based on fear this guy didn't know that God loved him, that the father loved him, and that in fact the father had always loved him. Rather than just give him a young goat every now and again, he would have given him his heart and soul at any time. The problem lies in the elder brother's heart. He has never known that he has accepted, even adored, just because God loves him. the Father loves him. We're on the final straight now. Out of this fear, when you are that afraid and we've all known this, let's not pretend that we've all, that none of us has ever been really scared. Um, you know some of us are more anxious than others, but fear, when you're scared you want to control he deeply needs to control the father because he cannot trust him. Where there is that much fear, you can't have trust. And really, I put, this is equal opportunities anger, you know, put female in here as well. Um, it's not fair. Finger out. I mean, which of us hasn't done this? Pointed the finger. It's not fair. I deserve better father. I deserve it. I'm deserving. I have rights, you know, because I have earned this by slaving you for you all these years. There's a contract here in my mind, and you're jolly well breaking it, although I'm sure he said words a lot stronger than that. My work and my obedience give me rights, (laughs) and you're ignoring them. You are ignoring them. I deserve better. Next slide Alison. So is he right? This is key question for us. Who's right here? Is it the Pharisees view of God as um, master who, and rule keeper extraordinaire? Is it salvation about keeping the rules? Is it about satisfying a God who can never be satisfied? Is it about serving a God in the hopes that one day he just might look favourably on you and if that's the case then how do you ever know you've done enough? You can't know. Is that what he's like? This is such a huge question for each one of us whether we are in Christ or not. All through our lives we keep coming back to who are you God? Who are you in this situation? What are you really like? Is our relationship with the Father a kind of contract? And I want you to answer that question with your head and I want you to go on answering it into this week because few things are more important than this, actually. But I also want you to answer it with your heart. Next slide, Alison. Because, you know, a lot of us here know the answer in fact I would say pretty much all of us could trot out very easily oh we know that we are loved and we may well believe this at some levels that we are loved but what I'm asking you now is do you know it in your deep deep inner self in such a way that you can live out of it or even live out of it most of the time or some of the time. Move on, Alison next slide. Mm. Keller, whose details are in the order of the, order of service, whom I used in preparation, had this lovely phrase We need a sense of this of the unconditional love of God on the palate of our hearts. We need a rooted gut level knowledge of it which is what I say I'm not as important as Keller but that's what it seems like to me I am not talking here about froth I'm not talking about a really good service that puts you on a bit of a high although that's fine and I'm all for it myself but it's not froth and it's not a high and it's not hype This is something deep down in the bones, (laughs) deep down in the gut, something that is a foundational thing that is there even when we're in a bad mood, which I can be in fairly frequently because Chris will tell you. Um, It's there, and if we can live out of that Then we can know the Father and go on knowing him in deeper and deeper ways. Jonathan Edwards, who was an 18th century minister, philosopher and theologian, said that the difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of his sweetness. So, where does that leave us? What can we do? Now there will be a mixture of experiences here this morning. Some of you know about this much, much better than I do and are living out of it. Others of us have had it at times and have then lost the sense of it, maybe because life has been hard or we're suffering in some way. And we've we've just lost the sense of God. And that's not a crime. Others of us maybe have never known it. I was a Christian for years and years before I really knew it. I would have died for God. I believed that much. Uh, I was very sincere. But I couldn't quite get this unconditional business. Because I was mixed up in my head about discipleship and serving. And da-da-da-da. So I know that you can move from not having it to having more of it (laughs) and then having more of it still. I would encourage you to have the courage to look at what's in your heart, in your head about this because few things are more important. Try to become aware of what's going on with you without self-criticism or self-judgment because that just gets in the way and it's not what God Mm -hmm. intends. Alison, move on. The truth is this, that God always wants to have us home with him, at the fire, in the light. And he never stops inviting us into deeper and deeper levels of his love. The truth is, move on Alison, that his love is based on his nature, not on our achievements. And that is key. He loves because he loves because he loves his door is always open and more than that he is out on the road searching for us how can we find this Alison I think we ask God for it and we keep asking we talk to others about it I wish I had talked about it more we meditate chew on absorbed study scripture and it will come because God wants, us, wants to come to us far more than we want to come to him. You see, in the end, God is the prize. There is no other prize. God himself and knowing him, having the freedom of his house, Being at home there where we completely fit where we are completely accepted we are completely loved and set free. That is the prize. Without this kind of knowledge of God's love we cannot trust him. Our service will easily become slavery. Our obedience may deteriorate into a joyless duty, and life will be much more of a struggle than it actually has to be. Final slide, Alison. As we finish this morning, think about the God whom we have worshiped throughout this service. Think of his vastness, think of his beauty, Think of his majesty. Think of the God who can make a tiny snowdrop and a vast mountain. Think of the God who went to the cross for you. This is your God. And he waits for you today. He will wait for you tomorrow. He is running towards you. This is your God. Amen.